The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Really wonderful introduction. Uh, you're not going to believe this, uh, but it is the truth. Now, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I wanted to be here today, and I wanted you to introduce me to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And I know you think that I'm making that up, but I'm not. Uh, we write books. Uh, we go through the, uh, uh, the labor of uh, writing books uh, for many unexpected reasons, but I like, I like to put it that it's... Uh, uh, the, the real reason is that it's a very, very labor-intensive way of, of being briefly uh, at the center of attention before a group of people that is interesting and interested in the topic. And so this is a, maybe a more heartening and meaningful event for me than, than even you realized. Uh, I remember uh, in my apartment in Beijing, probably after we all were able to move out of hotels and move into apartments, uh, uh, we had a, a long, remember we had a long argument about Taiwan and what American policy should be on Taiwan. Remember that? No. Oh, well. <laughs> we argued on Taiwan. Okay, so I was doubtlessly supporting the government, the U.S. government position <laughs> since I wrote the Taiwan Relations Act. That's why your thesis is not in my book. <laughs> <laughs> I started, uh, uh, the main reason why I wanted to write this particular book and the approach that I took on this particular book was to just do a vivid, uh, readable, uh, I, would, I hoped, uh, even gripping account of a fascinating and very important moment, both in American history and in Chinese history and actually in Soviet history as well, not to mention Japanese <coughs> history. Um, and I, I knew that, they, that important things happened. Uh, I knew that there was a fascinating cast of characters. And I just wanted to bring to life a moment in time when you have all these people, as I like to say, on all ten sides of the fence in China at that time, trying to understand uh, a murky situation. And for the United States, a situation that was unprecedented at the time, unless you want to go maybe some similarities with the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century, probably not. I think an unprecedented situation in which we, but, but a situation that became very familiar later, tragically familiar, and that, in, and that is still familiar to the United States, and that is facing a uh, finding uh, that we have by virtue of being the superpower, <coughs> the most powerful country on earth then as now, uh, and therefore inevitably uh, by a kind of default position, finding ourselves with a, with a major, expected to play a major role in a country that is divided into two <coughs> powerful Camps, one of which is on our side, but which happens to be the less effective, the more corrupt, uh, the, the, the side that, that has um, lost a great deal of its legitimacy, that's been <coughs> a disillusionment among many people, especially among the most talented and, and uh, among the intellectuals, the writers, the artists. And on the other side, a, uh, uh, a revolutionary force uh, that appears to be inimical to our interests, or that is deemed to be inimical to our interests, whether actually inimical or not. And that seems to have the future on its side. And what do we do in that situation? Uh, this was the first time, uh, and uh, we all know how many other times there have been, and uh, talking to Steve earlier, we were, we were talking about Afghanistan, and kinds of similarities that you could draw between the Karzai or the former Karzai government, got the name of the guy now, uh, uh, on the one side, the Taliban on the other, and that obviously it's, it's very different, and I, I don't want to be pinned down to trying to defend a, an absolute similarity, uh, but there's that basic similarity of regime a corrupt and, in many ways, ineffectual regime on our side, and a regime that seems to have more 
determination, uh, more grit, uh, more willingness to fight uh, on the other. And that's also wedded to a messianic ideology uh, that's supported from elsewhere in the world like the Taliban. So I wanted to write about all these people, uh, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai. One of the characters that I enjoyed writing about was a woman named Gong Peng, uh, formerly married to Chao Guanghua, the deposed foreign minister of China, who uh, I don't have time to go over her biography, uh, but she was um, a Joe's spokeswoman and Joe and I and half the press corps, half the American embassy, and half the British embassy were madly in love with her. And I mean literally. Uh, well, maybe not literally, but almost literally. Uh, and there are the, uh, the journalists, uh, uh, Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times, uh, Teddy White, obviously, of Time Magazine. Uh, uh, there were the journalists that went to Yan'an and wrote about the communists. Uh, there were the journalists that uh, divided deeply among themselves over, over John Kai-shek. You have to think about Teddy White and Henry Luce. There were the diplomats, uh, the China hands, uh, John Service, uh, Jack Davies, and others whose careers were destroyed uh, because of the advocacy that they made. Uh, for closer relations of better ties with the communists and their argument that, that uh, perhaps 25 years of enmity might have, might have been avoided if their advice had been followed. This is another point that I think Steve and I disagree with on somewhat. Uh, uh, one of the conclusions that I came to was that no, it wouldn't have made much of a difference even if the United States had followed their, uh, their advice. Uh, so there's, a, a, there's Patrick Hurley, uh, the Texas uh, part Choctaw uh, oil lawyer, uh, former uh, legal affairs uh, lawyer for the Choctaw Nation, uh, who goes to China as Roosevelt's special emissary and really messes things up uh, uh, in, a, in, a serious, in a serious way and in an interesting way an interesting way, but he was a very, very uh, colorful, craggy, very pungent character. And everybody is trying to figure out uh, what's going on here and, and what to do about it. And in a lot of ways, as time has gone by, we've continued uh, to send people. And I was such a person myself uh, for a while in China in the early 80s, uh, sent there to try to figure out this Colossus, this important, uh, mysterious, uh, uh, difficult country, and how to deal with it. And we're still trying to figure that out. Inevitably, you end up with some kind of interpretation. Uh, and I don't want to, I'd actually much rather have this to be a conversation uh, and see what questions and comments you have. But let me just talk a little bit about uh, the, interpre the interpretive side of the book. I, I started out with what I think of as the fairly conventional, accepted view established by people like Teddy White, by Barbara Tuckman, by my old professor at Harvard, John Fairbank, uh, that what happened in China was, to a considerable extent, a product of American policy mistakes. That if we had done things differently, specifically if we had followed the advice of service and babies and the other China hands, uh, the outcome would have been different. We would have been able to have a, perhaps not an amicable relationship with the uh, Chinese communists exactly, but at least with a working, non-hostile relationship. And how important that would have been if that would have been the case. We would have avoided most likely the Korean War. We would almost certainly have avoided the Vietnam War. Uh, and our history would have been a lot, a lot happier. Maybe China would have evolved uh, down a kind of semi-capitalist uh, uh, direction uh, much earlier uh, than it did. I believe that. Uh, I believe that John uh, Kaishek was essentially a bad guy. I believe that Mao Zedong and the communists were pragmatic and that they were pushed into an ideological direction by uh, the enmity shown to them by the United States. Um, and all of that uh, I've changed 
by by looking closely at the events uh, of this time uh, and the background uh, to those events. For example, I changed my view considerably on John Kaishak. I, uh, I was influenced to a great extent by Jay Taylor, whose biography of John Kaishak came out a few years ago. It was a very important influence influence on me. I think I, I take the argument even a little bit farther uh, than than he did. Uh, I feel I've come to feel that the Americans, uh, certainly the, a lot of the journalists, um, and the Americans were unfair to John and were expecting um, something of him that no leader at the time could have could have delivered. Uh, that is to fight more against the Japanese and pretend that the communists were not a threat uh, to his power. Uh, we forced him, and, and think of John also in this way, um, he was tarnished with the reputation of refusing to fight. Uh, Peanut won't fight, according to Stilwell. Uh, Peanut, by the way, John Kaishak, uh, had lost uh, thousands and thousands of his best troops uh, in Stilwell's fiasco in Burma in 1942. Uh, the American press celebrated Stilwell and the departure from Burma in 1942, uh, the walkout with 100 people, and it ignored the fact that thousands and thousands of Chinese troops were also forced to walk out, those that, those that made it. Uh, um, so th- th- John's uh, very, very little uh, support has been given to John's view of the war, which was to fight an essentially defensive war, to let the Americans do the serious fighting in the Pacific, uh, to preserve his forces for the future uh, battle in China, uh, not to allow his forces to be too chewed up uh, by the Japanese. Uh, They were chewed up by the Japanese, much more so than the communist forces. Uh, And Zhang's idea of of defense in depth, at least retrospectively to me, makes a certain sense. Remember uh, that Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists uh, held out against the Japanese for eight long years, four years completely alone before the United States got into the war, four years after the United States got into the war. They never surrendered. They tied down more than a million Japanese troops in China that would otherwise have been used uh, in in another theater of the war, specifically against American forces in the Pacific. Uh, And he's gotten very little credit for that, historically. Think by comparison of the French, who held out for six long weeks uh, before they surrendered and established a collaborationist government. Same with the Belgians, with the Dutch. The British uh, uh, cut and and ran in Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, uh, Burma, uh, it was only John Kaishek that held on, that didn't give up. And he's never been given, for all of his faults, I think maybe historically, retroactively, he should be given a little credit for that. Another area where I changed my view by looking at the material was on the, the nature of the relationship between the communists of China and the communists of the Soviet Union. Uh, here it's a fairly complicated and, and, and long argument, I I hope, it, I hope a persuasive one uh, is in a chapter called Hiding the Knife, uh, which I make the case that uh, Mao's attachment to Stalin and to the Soviets, uh, his allegiance to the Soviets, was not a conjunctural thing. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't a matter of kind of pragmatic convenience. It was, a, it was a deep and abiding ideological conviction and a sense of membership uh, in a glorious international movement that was going to radically change uh, the course of history. Uh, I mean, it's notable, for example, many, many elements of this argument. Uh, when uh, the Soviets uh, invaded Manchuria in the f- final, literally in the final hours, of the war, paradoxically at the invitation of Roosevelt and the Americans. I think the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, by the way, was the decisive, single most important and most decisive, uh, maybe you can't say most decisive, decisive uh, event uh, that determined the future course uh, of China or the course of
course of China history for the next several years. Uh, the Soviets were given <coughs> neo-colonialist privileges, uh, they got control over the Port of Dali and naval base in Port Arthur, control over the South Manchurian Railroad. Uh, they stripped, uh, they engaged in an orgy of looting and rape uh, in Manchuria uh, by their troops. They stripped Manchuria, as we all know, of uh, the industry that the Japanese had developed <coughs> during the time that they controlled Manchuria. And there was never a peep of protest about this from the communists. Never. Not a word. They accepted it as part of the price that they had to pay for this idea, for what was not only a practical alignment, but an ideological alignment, a kind of entire cultural transmission. before the end of the war to days after the end of the war, you can see uh, that their professions of friendship uh, for the United States and for the Americans uh, before, during the war was tactical, uh, and their allegiance to Stalin and to the Soviet Union uh, uh, after the war was strategic and, and enduring. Uh, I want to just... Uh, finish up with a um, kind of more general point about Steve earlier was asking me about, about the conclusion uh, that I draw and, and this too is something that kind of surprised me and um, represents a, a change in, in my position um, those of you who have known me over the years uh, are few people that I see who have known me uh, over the years uh, know that I'm a bit of a softy on human rights. Uh, I'm a kind of um, uh, a little, even a little bit sentimental and irrational on the topic. Uh, and I am an instinctive sort of humanitarian interventionist. I want the United States to use its influence and power to bring about a better world uh, to uh, fight against uh, violations of human rights uh, to actively seek the expansion of liberal democratic values throughout the world. China, in this sense, represents a failure of almost colossal <coughs> dimensions. Think of it this way. In 1941, we went to war in the Pacific with the overriding goal of saving China from occupation by a hostile force, the Japanese. We wanted, we, Roosevelt in particular, whose ancestors had traded with China and used to like to show at Hyde Park the porcelains uh, that his Delano ancestors had brought back uh, during the clipper trade with China uh, in the uh, 19th century. Roosevelt had an idea of China as one of the big four charter member of the United Nations, uh, John Kaishak, as a figure, along with himself and Stalin and, uh, and Churchill as uh, major figures uh, in the world. We dreamed uh, of, a, of a, a democratic, united, uh, friendly China. That was, that was our foreign policy goal. In a way, it's still our foreign policy goal with regards to China. Uh, and uh, we went to war against Japan in order to bring about that goal, a tremendous cost and tremendous sacrifice. And then uh, the end result was a China uh, occupied by a force probably even more inimical to American interests and values than the Japanese, whose occupation, as we all know, was unspeakably brutal of China. Uh, <coughs> So we went to war to bring about uh, one outcome, and we succeeded. We were victorious in the war, and then we lost uh, the political objective of that of that war. Uh, China, that was on the side of the Soviet Union in the Cold War, 
uh, a totalitarian regime that had whose values and practices were very identical uh, and contrary to those of the United States. I don't. Um, so, in a sense, the lesson that I draw from China 1945 is one that's actually kind of hard for me to accept. I still want to promote human rights, and I think that when a and Elon Toti is sentenced to life imprisonment for the crime of uh, expressing some dissent over Chinese government policies in Xinjiang, that we should protest, that we should make our dissatisfaction and displeasure about something like that known to the Chinese. I still believe that we should do that. Uh, and yet I also recognize that the deeper lesson of 1945 has to do with the limits of the American power to change the world according to our own specifications, that we have to deal with the world uh, as it is, uh, not the way uh, we would like it to be. Maybe that sounds like a kind of elementary lesson to those of you who have dealt more practically with China over the years, the diplomats and lawyers and businessmen in the, in the audience. Uh, but in a, in a funny way, I, I had to write this book before I came to that same conclusion. It's a hard lesson uh, for me to learn, but the facts have led me uh, reluctantly and under some interior protest to accept that conclusion that uh, we are limited in what we can do and we have to choose our our battles carefully and above all we can't um, set uh, national goals uh, that become matters of tremendous pride and prestige uh, to the United States that we can't that we then can't achieve uh, that I think is in the end the lesson that I draw from from having uh, written this book so uh, I'm going to stop there great Richard thank you you know, Jan Barris always kids me. She says, you never like books that you don't agree with. <laughs> but I like this book. I don't agree with it. Um, yeah, fundamentally, it, it, it's an interpretation of events that I think is, is you know, one where I just come out with, with very different conclusions that, you know, we don't have time to go through my entire thesis, but I did. The beauty of it was I did actually come back and, and pull it out, not having read it in 42 years. But, you know, from the period, in other words, where we differ is, again, you, you have to put yourself in the 1930s when there was very little communication, when, you know, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai's view of the United States was, was really through people they were meeting and, and some press reports. And it was almost, when you look at the documents that were released, it was almost an idealized view of the United States. They had... They had and when we looked at Chinese media, why would the Chinese Communist Party in Yan'an be saying good things about the United States to people in Yan'an, unless if they intended to kind of have a long-term relationship? That China uses its media to influence kind of um, the people's view. And when I went back and looked at all the, the news stories during World War II, at the beginning of World War II, they were very positive. I think the book also doesn't... The Chinese were done in by the Soviet... by, by, the, by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union innumerable times. We could go over each of those times. The dislike that they have and that still exists in China today for kind of being sold down the river by the... Um, by the Soviet Union. It persists today. So the dislike they had was tremendous, which gave the United States this, this window of opportunity from June 1944 until December of, 1940, of 1944, when this idealized notion combined with Roosevelt, you know, unfortunately Roosevelt then died, but combined with, with kind of our view that we should negotiate peace between the CCP and the KMT, and we blew it. Foreign policy does matter. And this fellow who you, you know, Patrick Hurley, who you described fabulously, in your chapter you called him the wrong man. I mean, he's this very, he's a colorful character, but this guy was one of the worst diplomats you could ever choose. You know, the State Department folks, you know, were stunned by his incompetence and his kind of uh, his ma ultimately making the Chinese the enemy that
that they weren't. So by the time the Soviets went into Manchuria, the die was cast. It was over. So to use that as an example of why this was inevitable, I think is probably... At that point, it was inevitable. By the time Hurley's mission failed, our foreign policy had created the enemy that we might not have had had we had the right people in place, had we followed the advice of the great, you know, what I thought were fabulous analysts, John Stewart's, John Stewart's service, John Patton Davies, John Carter Vincent. That, you know, these are guys I interviewed, and they really did understand China. They actually understood China very well, and had that policy been been followed, we would have probably, we, as you said, we may have avoided the Korean War. We almost certainly would have avoided the Vietnam War. So the lesson that I draw from this is quite different. Is foreign policy matters, and who you put in place matters. And if we have Nick Platt, who understands and can kind of convey to the foreign government what's going on, it makes a difference rather than having a political appointee who doesn't get it. It actually does matter. And in this case, it actually had extraordinary consequences. So I come away with, with, uh, with quite different um, lessons from this period. Though I think you know the, the factual recounting, everything is no disagreement. Well, on, on the Nick Platt question, <laughs> he was sitting there. I couldn't avoid okay, foreign services. At least, while, life. at least not while he's in the room. Um, <laughs> later, later, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Steve. I, I mean, I don't. We obviously we, we don't agree. And you've read the book. And if reading the book hasn't persuaded you of the error of your ways, <laughs> you're either right or you're a very stubborn guy. Uh, or both. Uh, it also uh, let's try not not you know go over the <clears throat> try to sort of go over the uh, the chronology of events uh, it would take us much too long and I'm sure that other people would like to have their say. Um, I answer that that challenge to some extent by deciding what were the realistic options for the United States. What would it have taken for the United States to do uh, so that the Chinese communists did not see them as a hostile force, which they did. And almost immediately with the end of the war, the Americans, well, we all know they did two things. They began to transport nationalist troops to uh, former Japanese-occupied territories in order for the government to take uh, sovereignty uh, in that territory, and two, they um, they sent 50,000 Marines to to China, to the North China, North China ports, in order to maintain order in those areas and to uh, supervise the uh, repatriation of uh, more than a million Japanese soldiers and another million Japanese civilians. Big job. Uh, was there any possibility at all? And, and those were the two things that the Chinese communists saw as most inimical to their interests. They wanted to be able to move into those areas and take control over their territories because they knew, as the nationalists did, that a civil war was looming between the two sides and, uh, and it was going to be a, a winner-take-all contest. I suppose, theoretically, the United States could have said, okay, we're not going to help the nationalists transport its troops. It's the government we recognize, the legitimate government of China, the Soviet Union had just signed a treaty of friendship and cooperation with the nationalists in which the Soviets were pledged to give aid, including material aid, to the Chinese, to the Chinese, to the government of China and only to the government of China. In other words, not to give any help at all to the communists. It was a treaty that they began to violate as soon as the ink was dry on the paper. And I have a chapter of a lot of material on that violation of the Soviet obligation. Was there a real possibility uh, that the United States could just sort of say, okay, we're done, we're leaving, uh, we're not going to help the Chinese government to reestablish sovereignty over its own territory, even though they've been alive to us for the last four years, and even though they held out against the Japanese and held down a million Japanese troops for, uh, for the four years that we were involved in the war and for the four years before that, 
specific goal. Is that really an option? I don't think so. Uh, I have a kind of Tolstoyan view. I've been rereading War and Peace uh, and fascinated by the theoretical chapters about how statesmen think that they're controlling events, but in fact it's events that are controlling statesmen. And I think in this event it was events that controlled statesmen. It wasn't statesmen that determined the events. As far as sending the 50,000 Marines, the Chinese Communists began attacking these Marines. The first casualties and the first deaths that took place uh, in conflict between Chinese Communist soldiers and American soldiers was not in the Korean War. It was on the road between Tianjin and Beijing in 1945, days after the end of the war. The Communists began to try to put pressure to take some casualties, to follow what later became the Vietnamese strategy, to uh, make the cost of our presence so high that uh, public that pressure would build in, in, in the home country to withdraw our forces and to leave the Communists free to, uh, uh, to take over the territories that they, that they wanted to take over and where they already had a substantial guerrilla, guerrilla force uh, from, the, from during the war. Um, that was the strategy uh, that they followed. They didn't take a lot of casualties, but I don't remember the exact number, but it was uh, 18 Marines were killed in these skirmishes. A few dozen were wounded. Uh, and it started right after uh, uh, the end of the war. Did the United States really have the option not to send Marines to North China? I don't, I don't think so. I, I think in the real world, we had to do it. Uh, it would be, it would have been politically, it would have been militarily, it would have been morally impossible for us not to do that. And by doing it, inevitably, we put ourselves into, we made ourselves an obstacle to, uh, to the goals of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's that, that I think is the practical origins, leaving aside the ideological origins, which I think are also very important of Sino-American hostility. So yeah, you're right. Uh, it's it's not a totally clear picture. There were those press articles. There was uh, uh, that period in uh, starting in around June '44 and going on up through the end of the year, where the Dixie mission, the observer mission, was in Yan'an, where there were very cordial ties, where the, uh, the American diplomats and journalists used to dance at the Saturday night parties in the, in the uh, Peach Garden uh, uh, in, in Yan'an, where the two sides used to talk about, uh, about future friendship, where Mao made a lot of declarations about how the, the Chinese Communist Party rejected the Soviet one-party state model and uh, Yes, maybe communism was a goal for 100 years later, but in the meantime, they admired American democracy. I don't believe that he really meant that. And I think the history of Chinese communism subsequent to his take, take, power, take over power is pretty strong evidence that he did believe in the one-party state as long as he controlled the one party. But the one-party state with a good relationship with the United States is not necessarily inconsistent, as we have now learned. Yeah, that, that, that the idea that, that, and again, maybe we don't disagree in that I completely agree that by the end of World War II, the opportunity had passed, that bad American diplomacy, if there had been that opportunity, it was gone, that by literally by the end of the Dixie Mission, the beginning of the Marshall Mission, it, it, was, it was fated, that there was no way to reverse it. But if you go back to 1944, if we had provided material aid to the Chinese Communist Party, which we didn't in Yan'an, um, would they have had a different view? You know, they had an idealized notion of America. Those who were on the ground there, who really were extraordinary, brave, and knowledgeable Americans about China, thought this was, this was a real way we should have gone. And in a sense, what then happened when Nixon went to China, suggests, you know, again, we, we saw, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union and China as monolithic. We completely had it wrong. And then Nixon showed, you know, finally we recognized that, in fact, a U.S.-China alliance with the Soviet Union as its, the main purpose of that alliance was perfectly feasible. 1944, that could have 
could have been possible. We don't know. We will, as you said, but when we were speaking before, we will never know. But certainly, the lesson is, you know, we need folks who really we need policy based upon folks on the ground who understand it. And why I worry about it today, why I say the lessons for today are often, you know, we hear the U.S. Congress or the U.S. government make statements about China that ain't real accurate. And you worry that you're going to be getting wrong policies as we did 70 years ago. Um, I, I have a, something to say. I'm going to take some um, Go ahead, respond, then we'll take questions. Um, my response. Um, let, let, me, let me marinate uh, mm-hmm. that a little bit. And, yeah. Bill had a question right here. Do we have microphones today or no? No microphones. So speak very loudly. Or should I, can I give this one? You know, actually, let me just say one thing. Just pa- pa- take this and then pass it. When Does, I think that your position on it, Steve, presupposes that it's always the American decision that, that makes the difference. Um, both sides have some options. Just as China exercised an option in 1972 to uh, rebalance uh, uh, between the Soviets and the United States, Mao had options, especially in 49 when he took power in the early 50s, but also in the late in the late 40s. He had options. He could have he could have opted for a more Tito-like policy, more equidistant. You would think, in a way, I mean, one of the things that I think. I completely agree with you about about the China hands. I, I completely admire them. They're they're heroes to me. Uh, and I say in the book, so as to be sure that I'm not missing. In fact, one of my one of the reviewers of them criticized me for over elaborating on this point. That uh, I don't think that if I had been in their place, that I would have done any better. Uh, I would have been very very proud to have done half as well uh, as as they did. An incredibly difficult circumstances, but I don't think they were right about everything. Uh, even I think that even heroes can make can make mistakes, uh, and um, w- one of the mistakes that they made was to underestimate uh, the dictatorial uh, and megalomaniacal quality of Mao. Uh, they had no idea about the Jungfang movement of '42 to '44, for example. Their portrayal of the communists as agrarian reformers was wrong. Uh, and then back to the point about choices. Uh, why couldn't, uh, I mean, they, they thought, the China hands thought uh, the word Tito as it didn't exist in 45. Tito didn't come until later. But they thought kind of re- retroactively that that now could have been more like Tito if only we had played our cards differently. But Mao had that choice, nonetheless. I mean, did we have to do everything that he wanted us to do? Give him weapons? I mean, what we expected, we recognized the nationalist government of China. They've been, they're recognized by every government uh, in the world as a legitimate government of China. They're fighting against the Japanese. It's an existential struggle. The communists represent a, 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 a criminal rebel band. And we're going to give arms to the enemies of the of the government that we're allied to, there's no such problem. even even if it would have brought about a different outcome, it was politically and morally impossible to do that. We could never have armed uh, a a party that was then going to use those arms to uh, to fight against the government that we were allied to and that we recognized. So even if you're right that theoretically in 1944, if we had enhanced intelligence cooperation if we had acceded to the Chinese demand that we provide arms for them. Uh, uh, if, if Mao and, and Zhou Enlai had been able to go to Washington in the beginning of 1945 and consult with Roosevelt and make their case, uh, I still don't think that the ultimate outcome would have been different. I think that would have been a, a temporary, that would have been a moment. Uh, and then the fundamentals would have reasserted themselves. For the communists to use the weaponry against the Japanese, the U.S., we were looking at an, no atomic bomb, we were looking at an invasion of Japan. This would have saved 
hundreds of thousands of American lives, it would it could have been done if the decision had been made. So I don't the politics of it again in 1945. We didn't have the atomic bomb. We thought we were going to have to invade Japan. We knew it was going to cost tens of thousands of American lives. So that we could give weaponry to Mao to fight the Japanese and hold down other other forces. I don't think that's that so implausible. But go ahead, Bill. Yeah. Uh, Richard, Bill Armbruster, retired journalist. Uh, you said that we went to war against Japan to prevent them from taking over China. I mean, we were attacked by Japan. There's no way the American public or Congress would have supported a war against Japan had we not been attacked. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I, I didn't use the correct phrase. I mean, we fought the war with them. Once we got into the war, of course you're right that we got into the war because of Pearl Harbor. Uh, I don't know whether we would have gotten into the war if the Japanese had been smarter and not attacked us. I think probably eventually we would have gotten into the war. Uh, don't forget the Japanese were part of the Axis, uh, and we were, we were going to get into the war in Europe one way or the other. Uh, even though we also got into the war in Europe because you know, after the after Pearl Harbor, but nonetheless, once we were in it, uh, the um, the goal uh, was as I was as I stated it. Uh, you know, our sympathies were with China. Uh, you know, for for long before for for obvious and good and good reasons, we didn't like the idea of this naked aggression on the part of the Japanese. Uh, for moral reasons and for economic reasons, for practical reasons, for all sorts of reasons. Couple of Thank you, um, Hen uh, Henry Yan. So throughout the 40s, as Mao's uh, communists were fighting the uh, Chiang's KMT, I think even a few years before the eventual fall of the uh, Chiang's KMT, it was pretty apparent that they're gonna fail, they're gonna lose. And can you share your thoughts? You might have shed some light earlier that. Can you share your thoughts of, at the time, the U.S. foreign policy in China and what are the rationale why that eventually, well, not eventually, even a few years before that, they knew that the KMD is going to fail? Why support the government that's going to lose the war? Um, well, this is one area where Service and Davies and the other China experts in the Foreign Service were right that the KMT was going to fail. Uh, but I don't think that it was universally known uh, that the KMT was going to fail. Uh, I mean, if you look at the military balance uh, as of the end of the war, uh, there was lots of reason to think that the KMT would, have, you know, would be able to hold on to control of a large portion, certainly China south of the uh, of the Yellow River, uh, if not China north of the Yellow River. So I don't think it was widely accepted that John Kaiser was going to was going to was going to fail. And then, you know, but you also, I mean, it's a, it's a tough question. Let, let's fast forward a half a century and talk about Afghanistan today. Is the Kabul government going to fail? <coughs> yes, it's going to fail. I guarantee you, you heard it here first, 10 years from now, the Taliban is going to be in control of all of Afghanistan. Is that stopping us from supporting the Kabul government? Why not? Because events control men, and men don't control events men and women. And I think that, that was also the case in China. There was a kind of historical momentum, a long relationship, a, a, a question of diplomatic legitimacy that required, you know, you know even Davies and Service uh, didn't, I mean, one, one, of the, one of the reviewers of the book uh, says that I argue, that, that, that I characterize Davies and Service as saying that we needed to abandon Chiang Kai-shek and side with the communists. That's not true. They wanted to rebalance the relationship. They wanted, as Steve said, to be able to give arms uh, to the Chinese Congress. They wanted to build more of a relationship with them that they hope would endure uh, beyond the war and give the, and give the communists a stake uh, in a good relationship with the United States. That was their, that was their goal. And by the way, we don't disagree on that. I think that should have been tried. We should have done that. Uh, I don't think it would have worked, but I think we should have tried it. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Kabul. Kabul. Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, sorry. Afghanistan. You know, there's a certain historical and epic history that we couldn't have uh, stopped supporting the nationalist government. Um, 
we had to treat them as the legitimate government of China. And when, as I said, when the war came to an end, uh, and they needed us to engage in one of the most one of the most massive airlifts uh, that had ever taken place in the history up to that point, the, 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 the airlift of, of nationalist troops. Did we really have an option not to do that? Could we have just said, okay, well, let it be a free-for-all. The communists will take over what they can, and the nationalists will take over what they can. They'll fight a civil war. We have, nothing, we have nothing to do with it. Maybe in retrospect, that would have been a wiser policy. Because the outcome certainly wouldn't have been any worse. Uh, but it was impossible to do it at the time for political reasons for, the, for what I talk about as the kind of momentum of events and the momentum of history. A lot of hands. Go ahead. Yeah, you've got the microphone. Um, uh, we all realize that uh, huh? my name is uh, Wei Chun Gu. I'm a businessman. Uh, I have a PhD in political science, so I came from China originally. Uh, Douglas Murray brought me here. I thank him for that. Uh, uh, that was uh, three decades ago. Uh, uh, we all realize we are now talking about uh, something counterfactual. And there are uh, historians uh, and political scientists who think it is uh, not very useful to discuss uh, counterfactual uh, because history already turned out the way it turned out. Uh, however, uh, scholars, uh, I think, do have a point in discussing uh, counterfactual things. Uh, so. The point you, you raised, I, I think, is uh, very interesting. You know, how could history actually evolve, uh, given the facts that uh, prevailed at that time? Um, there are some uh, young Chinese scholars uh, who have compiled uh, many some books uh, containing uh, the major reports from the communist press during the uh, war period. Uh, and they said that lots of tons of good things about the United States and the fact that they wanted to promote democracy, multi-party system. And some people now say they were not sincere and they were just trying to create a good impression on the Americans and on the rest of the Western world. Uh, but after me, myself, reading uh, these, uh, that literature, uh, somehow I felt there was uh, some uh, uh, quite a degree of uh, sincerity in that. They were not just uh, trying to fool everybody. Uh, they, they, I, I think to a certain extent, I think to, a, to a, a great extent, many of the editors and the writers believed what, what, they, what they said. They believed the, the U.S. would be uh, an example to emulate after the war was over, and they were also tact uh, tactically using that as an argument to criticize Chiang Kai-shek, who they saw was not following the, uh, the instructions and the model of their patron, which was the United States. And they, because at that time, they were already kind of uh, at heart, some of them, um, I don't know the percentage, many of them were communists. They called themselves communists, Yet, they, they uh, had a very positive view of the U.S. The U.S. was the antithesis of, of communism at that time, and they realized that. And this, this was one thing. I wonder if you had systematically studied that literature, and what's your take on that? You think they were trying to fool people, or they really at least had the several camps among them, the communists? Uh, some of them were more pro-Russia and others were indeed at heart pro the U.S., uh, who right. even though called right. themselves communists. The okay. And there was another okay. event. Yeah, there was okay. another event. Okay. Just, uh, one, one uh, there was, uh, uh, according to some literature in China, published in China official press, Mao wanted to organize a delegation and uh, to visit the U.S. Right. together with Joe Biden. Okay. So, yeah, if you read the book, you'll, you'll see my account of that. Mao sent the message it was sabotaged by the aforementioned hurling, and there was no such no such meeting could take place. But it couldn't have taken place because Roosevelt wouldn't have been able to meet with Mao and Joe uh, for political reasons, even if Mao and Joe wanted to align themselves with the United States and become uh, democratic allies of the United States. You know, I think it's possible in the capaciousness of the mind to hold two contradictory ideas uh, at the same time. 
I don't, I don't think that. Uh, I've never done this, but it would be interesting in this regard to look at the Soviet press during the, during the war. We we provided the wherewithal for the Soviets to win World War II, and the Soviets did win World War II. Uh, they were the ones who defeated the Germans primarily. Uh, we were allied with Stalin for the entire length uh, of the war. Uh, I don't know, what, what did the Soviet press say about the United States? I don't think that it treated uh, 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 us as reactionary uh, capitalist bloodsuckers. Uh, it, it treated us as, uh, anti as progressive anti-fascist forces with whom it was legitimate to be allied. And the same with the Chinese communists. During the time that Chinese communist interests and American interests coincided, uh, the commentary was favorable. And I don't accuse the people that wrote that commentary of bad faith or of dishonesty. They probably really believed it. They admired the United States. They were happy to have the United States on its side. Uh, but, they, but the long-term interests diverged eventually. Uh, was it? I, 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 and there again, I use the difference between the, the tactical and strategic. I think these press reports have to do with the tactical, not the strategic. Stop right there. Ken Wasserman, I'm an attorney. Can you offer your conclusions concerning some of the major weaknesses of Chiang Kai-shek and some of the major weaknesses? of Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong had no major weaknesses. You can say... Mao Zedong was one of the great political geniuses of the 20th century. Uh, I mean, this is the guy who came from nowhere uh, and like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a rebel leader at the, at the end of a, of a dynasty from a thousand years before uh, became the undisputed uh, leader of a powerful force that took over control of the world's biggest country. You can't argue with that. There were no weaknesses there. It was his consistent uh, uh, and unchanging goal. Everything that he did uh, was aimed at achieving that objective, whether it was being nice to the United States or finding the United States to be an enemy. It was all subordinated to that, to that objective. What were the underlying ideological uh, what are the ideological underpinnings of that objective and what was he going to do once he achieved that objective, I think, was going to put him into conflict with the United States, certainly with our values. Uh, uh, but uh, he had no weaknesses. John Kaszek had numerous weaknesses. Uh, what, I, what I think is that some of his strengths and some of the things that were admirable uh, about him have been neglected by previous historians. It's almost a kind of a sentimental point. I mean, what does it make really? Uh, whether we admire him or don't admire him. He's, uh, he was one of history's great, great losers. But once the Japanese invaded, let me put it this way, once the Japanese invaded, <coughs> he was finished. There was no possibility once the Japanese engaged in a full-scale invasion of China that Chiang Kai-shek was going to be able to survive in power because the Japanese created the conditions that were going to weaken him while the communists were going to be strengthened. And this is, this is a, 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 an important point. Of, I, I talked earlier about the misconceptions that I had, uh, that I feel in my own mind I've, I've corrected in doing the research for this book. I also believed you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom that, that the force that was really fighting the Japanese was the communists. The nationalists were doing nothing they were corrupt, uh, they were ineffective, they were cowardly, uh, they, they, they took a million uh, or more, uh, almost two million military casualties. Uh, but at the same time, somehow we believe that even if they could take two million military casualties and they weren't fighting. The, the communists took uh, something, I, I can't remember, it's, it's in the book and I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was well less than 10% of the total military casualties in World War II were taken by the communists. The two sides did exactly the same thing. They tried to preserve their for the forces that they could in preparation for the future battle. And Mao was much better at it than Chiang Kai-shek was because he had much more opportunity to do so. And he was clever. I mean, he, he, he was better at expanding his forces behind enemy lines. He built up a political infrastructure. He was fresh and new and untried. And Chiang Kai-shek was responsible for this disaster. And so gradually, uh, John kind of lost his luster and 
many of China's intellectuals became disillusioned with him. The student, there were huge student demonstrations against nationalists in early 1945. Uh, there's a chapter in the book called The Tragedy of the Chinese Revolution, where I talk about what happened to those intellectuals once the communists took power. It's a very sad story. But now, but yeah, John Kashak was bound to lose, and Mao Zedong was bound to win. Karen Christensen, Berkshire Publishing. How would the world we know today be different had those um, the leaders of that time made different or per, and perhaps better decisions? Well, as I say, I I think that <clears throat> if um, you know, I'm uh, I'm a patriot. Um, we're all patriots, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can be a patriot and not agree with me. Um, I think you know, that we were a force for, for great good. Uh, we fought the, the forces of darkness and tyranny in both Asia and in Europe uh, during World War II, and we had a, a vision of uh, bringing about a new and democratic, peaceful world order. And that vision was ruined by Joe Stalin. Uh, he didn't have to reassert control over all of Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, Mao didn't have to uh, impose uh, a dreadful dictatorship on, on China. Uh, he had, they, they all had choices. And they, they, I think that Mao and Stalin, Stalin especially, uh, I hold him much more responsible than Mao. Mao was a relative small fry in this, uh, the head of a, a big but extremely weak country, weak and poor country. The Soviet Union was the second most powerful country in the world. It was on the way to, to, have, to getting the bomb. Uh, they made choices that were injurious to um, peace and harmony, uh, democratic values uh, to millions of people uh, around the world who who were slaughtered or who were imprisoned. Nick, they had made different choices, the world would have been better place. Because I took your name in vain. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, the discussion here today has made me really want to read this book. That was my that was my point. And for one, for one, uh, there hasn't been a good recent um, a good recent description of what went on, and I look forward to that. Uh, I myself came along later. Uh, if none of these things had happened, I would never have gotten a job. Um, <laughs> the you know, State Department was devoid of. of, of if they hadn't purged China all the China hands, you wouldn't you wouldn't have become a China hand. Precisely, there, there would have been no openings. But in any case, that's beside the point. Um, but I think the the flow of history, and which is what dictates reality is the important thing, and I want to find out more about it. I think any any work that ultimately convinced Richard Bernstein that he should accept the world as it is uh, and take a more practical worldview uh, is in itself worth doing. <laughs> just want to you've waited patiently just 30 seconds I mean, very quick we okay, oh, I have one more point about Mao oh. Mao as great at seizing power he had no weaknesses in that respect because he got power but once he got power he was a terrible terrible governor and he came into conflict not just with the United States but with all the other people in his government who were more practical uh, Daniel Zaretsky, actually American Chamber of Commerce in Tajikistan, which is west of China, but home in New York here. Uh, my question is very quickly, but this fascinates me, this question. You mentioned the point of personalities. My question is this. Russia before communism was basically a friend of the United States. China before communism was not an enemy. I mean, their enemies were Britain, France, blah, blah, concessions, and so on. Do you think communists or no communists because of the geography and because the United States was the, the key power and these were rising powers that it was destined that China and Russia would become enemies of the U.S. regardless of eventually who was in power due to this, you know, the way that empires rise and fall. 
Thank you for that easy question. A quick question. Uh, I don't think it was inevitable, but uh, I guess, but it happened. Uh, why did the United States have to be an enemy of the Bolshevik Revolution, and why did the Bolshevik Revolution have to be an enemy of the United States? And obviously, there were ideological reasons. We were the, the blood-sucking uh, uh, capitalists, uh, the headquarters of the of the international bourgeoisie, representing you know the 60 families that controlled everything and that wanted to uh, use imperialist labor uh, to uh, uh, fill our coffers. Um, uh, did they really believe it? I think I think they really did. We also uh, went to war in the Soviet Union in 1920 uh, to try to overturn the Bolshevik Revolution, which wasn't a very smart move on our part either. Um, somehow it happened, but frankly, I, I'm going to end this with more of a whimper than a bang, and I apologize for that. But the answer to you, the, I don't know the answer to your question. It's too big. <laughs> I want to thank Richard for both writing the book and joining us today, which was a real fun program. It's a great read. You can buy it right back here, and Richard will sit up here for a few minutes and sign copies. So thanks again.